Broadsheet Radio Network. And welcome to another episode of Shared History. The history picker-upper. Oh, I like that. Is it like a pooper scooper? Yeah. Sometimes history just shit. (laughs) Oh, God. I know we say it every time, but Natalie and I started a history podcast because we're nerds and we love history. And we just constantly talk about how much we hate history and how awful history is. And we're like starting every show with, you guys, history sucks keep listening to the episode does that mean that that this podcast is the history picker upper because we're we're a pick-me-up for when history's got you down yeah you know what because stretching yeah we're you know what we make it work right we are the tim gunn of history podcasts make it work for seven seasons and a movie (laughs) pass how are you natalie so good i'm so excited i miss history um we've had kind of a we we're in history right now listeners recording um and we've had kind of figuring out our schedule so i've had intermittent history moments and it's been a while and i'm ready i'm ready to share i'm ready for history to be shared with me i'm i'm excited to be part of it do you want to ask how i'm doing and i'll answer my favorite way Oh, shoot. You know, Natalie, usually you, you like lead me and drag and like, I know, kicking and screaming in life. And then I'm like, oh, yeah. Hey, Nat, how are you doing? <laughs> it's the end of February at time of recording. And I have finished reading 45 books this year. Oh, my God. And that's the best way I can answer that question. I saw uh, some random Instagrammer who was like, oh, yeah, I write books. And she was, like, super cool and funny and interesting. And I just forwarded it to Natalie. And I said, who is this? Have you read all their books? I don't know who it is, but I assume you have because you know everyone. Because I've read all the books. There Every book. aren't any left. That's not true, though. What a great segue you accidentally set me up for. Speaking of people who Oops. read all the books. This <laughs> Our very first guest episode of the season, and we have an author on. We have an amazing gentleman who is joining us, uh, an intensely curious author and independent publisher is what he calls himself, and I liked it, so I stole it. Welcome to the podcast, Michael McBride, author of of multiple, many books across genres, cross reading levels, uh, also a holder of a PhD, which means I just want to call him doctor. Um <laughs> Michael McRide, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. And um, and it's exciting to hear more about what's been going on with you guys. So, Mostly insanity, just slow. Dis- Generally. I have to ask you, <laughs> Michael, because I, I creeped you on the internet and I know that you, that you post unsolicited book reviews. And so I, I, kind of want to put you on the spot and ask you for like a recent unsolicited book review of maybe like a recent read. I I read all over the place, Uh, different, different genres, whatever happens to come my way. Um, I just finished 
a book that is about the history of Dungeons and Dragons, which as an 80s kid I played and of course it was satanic and everything and um, I knew some stuff about Gary Gygax and Anderson and those people but I didn't quite know what happened between them. I knew there was a falling out and then they lost control of D&D and then they came back with like the third edition and anyway so this book basically told the story from 1965 to 1985 with like a little uh, epilogue that told you kind of what happened after that so um, and I'm blanking on the title because you did put me on the spot but there's not very many books that are about the history of D&D um, it was about 400 You're pages narrow it down <laughs> yeah. We'll have figured it out by the time that this is launched and it will be in the show notes. I I promise you I'm writing it down now. It's funny, I almost did the history of D&D for an episode. Often when we have guests on, we're prepared with another story if we need to. And we had uh, actor and professional game master, uh, Thor Nye, on a couple seasons ago. And so in case we... In case we needed it, I I had and we never we've never covered it. It's just sitting in my notes. It's super interesting, and I and I at one point I was a I was an educator, and I would look for research projects just because, uh, man, that's what you do. And I discovered this um, thing by H. G. Wells called Little Games from 1911, and he essentially is kind of the grandfather for Dungeons and Dragons because he laid out these rules to recreate Napoleonic battles. And that is kind of the tabletop model of like Dungeons and Dragons and games that came after that. So, um. Michael, this isn't your fault because you don't know this. And honestly, I don't know if Natalie knows this, but I get a little miffed when we talk about Dungeons and Dragons because I have been wanting to play. I've been wanting to join a campaign for years. And Natalie's like, oh i'm like in the middle of like 12 right now and they're like each four years but like when one of them finishes yeah we'll totally start one with you and i'm like don't gatekeep dungeons and dragons from me and i feel like everyone who's into dungeons and dragons is like oh yeah you should play it's like oh can i play they're like what well, i'm in the middle of a 20 long year campaign so like <laughs> can't start one now Listen, if you were <sighs> you would know that in order, if you didn't want me to gatekeep Dungeons and Dragons, you would just have to make an attack roll and <laughs> how you want to storm the gate. I don't know what these things mean because you won't let me in. <laughs> I have... Sorry, I don't want to start beef. Michael, again, that's not your fault. You didn't know. Again, I don't think Natalie knew how upset I was about it. I should be honest, I don't actually play Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, that's a weird thing. Like, I played it in the 80s. I am fascinated by the rules. Like, as an 80s kid, like, I was a terrible D&Der. I just liked reading the rule books and, like, trying to figure <laughs> out, like, how people came up with this idea, the, like, saving throws and, like, figuring out, like, which die to use for which thing. And anyway, so that's the kind of nerd I am. I like the rules, but I don't actually play it. <laughs> you just I love it. I love a it. a whole different level of being a nerd. <laughs> I have to I have to mention this because it happened today. I have to shout out a uh, a friend a real life friend of mine and a friend of the pod, Susan Harmon, who literally did her like defended Oh, Susan. Her. She defended her is it a thesis if it's a PhD program? I dissertation usually. Okay. Yeah. She had her, her defense today and her uh dissertation was on Dungeons and Dragons and Dewey. Oh. 
And the full title was Toward a, Ludi- uh, toward a Ludic Pedago- Pedagogy? Pedag- I'm bad at Pedagogy. 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 Pedagogy of Democratic Civil Life Through the Philosophy of John Dewey and the Tabletop Role-Playing Games. That's spectacular. Susan was like my personal therapist for like all of the time I knew her. And just she'd be like, oh, you know, it's like John Dewey says, or it's like, oh, you know, that makes me think of Nietzsche. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> my life reminds you of Nietzsche. <laughs> same. Big same. Uh, Love it. Hardest person. Love her. Love you, Susan. So I feel like we have to talk about your your background, your PhD, your your PhD is in 18th century Brit lit and 19th century American literature. Is that right? Yeah. So the program I had, you chose a major and then two minor areas. Um, and so my major was 19th century American literature. And then secondary area was uh, 18th century British, because I kind of figured like it would, can you know, go British to American, and it seemed to make sense to me at least. Um, and then the third one was um, um, rhetoric and composition, so um, kind of outside that. But um, the dissertation was about essentially mobs. Like I was really interested in like um, cha- social change, good and bad, and just kind of how angry people. Um, made change happen and and it had to look at literature to find examples and that kind of thing so I love that so much I was Brit lit Victorian all of that I mean very wide genre but that's my sweet spot I love it I'm very much nerding out right now <laughs> that's why I was like I have to bring this up because Cass doesn't I'm does, living vicariously through so I was like I need to let her know I mean, my, my true love was really the 1890s um, because it's, I mean, really, it's like weirdly reflective of now with like economic collapse and like some people way up and some people way down and, um, you know, just kind of boom and bust and people like, you know, Mark Twain, but also um, Ida B. Wells, who's my personal literary hero um, and just all of the social changes that occur during that time was just and to me, super inspiring, um, but I, I couldn't find anyone to let me do my dissertation on that. So I had to go back a little further <laughs> and find a way to well, kind of shoehorn them. some of that stuff. Sorry, in. <laughs> that, was, that was a little <laughs> aggressive, but I want to to put it on the record. Fuck that. <laughs> respectfully? That's definitely how I felt. <laughs> Re- yeah, uh, respectfully, of course. <laughs> I, I, that's such an interesting area of, of history Mm -hmm. and, and as following suit writing. So I, I'm, I guess the Haymarket riot, which is a huge love of mine is, is not 1890s. It's 1886. Um, but my house was built in the 1890s. I'll take it. And it's falling apart right now. She Um, doesn't live in a house right now. (laughs) I live in my office. So what then brought you, because as I mentioned, you're an independent publisher and an author. So where did you, kind of, obviously, love of literature, that's what your PhD is in. But like some of what you're, you're writing is middle grade, right? And some of it is sci-fi and it's kind of all over the map. So I'm just curious kind of how you found your way on that journey. I'm a stupidly curious person and it just, I, I don't know, there are lots of things that interest me. And I have, for the longest time, um, before I guess I pursued higher education, I couldn't find a job that made me happy. So I was always 
losing a job or changing jobs constantly to try to figure out something that worked. And for me, teaching seemed like it would be the, the path forward because at least I got to reinvent myself every 15 weeks. You know, there was always a new class or a new group of students and, you know, I could be patient enough to get to the end of that so that I could do something different. Um, but honestly, like finding a tenure track teaching job where you want to live is not an easy task. <laughs> um, and so after kind of cobbling together um, number adjunct positions to make something that uh, amounted to kind of a living um, for eight, well, I guess it was 13 years ultimately that I taught kind of with a bin of books and going between different schools and that kind of stuff. Uh, I had to find a different way forward, but I still wanted to do all of those things that I liked. Um, I still wanted to research and I still wanted to write and I wanted to do those pieces. Um, so I started writing grants. I found a grant writing place that I could work at. Um, and then it gave me time to kind of do the writing on the side that I wanted to do. Um, and that job kind of evolved for a while. And now I actually write proposals uh, for consultant in Dallas. Um, it's not glamorous, um, but you know, it allows me to do that. And then I channel my creative energies into other things. Um, as far as the diversity of things I write, it really is just, I get bored. You know, if I always only wrote sci-fi or fantasy or adult contemporary or, you know, whatever I would, I would run out of, I just, I wouldn't be interested in it, you know? So the minute that I'm done with something, I usually make a left turn and do something completely different. So. Yeah. I would say that it's a left turn to be like, here's, here's a nonfiction book about uh, LGBTQIA plus history. And then like, here's a mid-grade interactive detective book. Like these two things are not like the, although the pipeline between them, I feel like is pretty clear. It, it, you're, you're right. I mean, I mean, that's why it doesn't really work to, to sell me as a product because people who like the middle grade novels that, you know, there aren't very many people who are like, you know, I like choose your own adventures mixed with Encyclopedia Brown mixed with Magic Treehouse. That's the Thompson Twins books. And I'm also really interested and an avid reader of nonfiction or, you know, whatever else I, I feel like writing. Uh, they might have kids, you know, like the parent might like this thing and the kid might enjoy that thing, but it's, it's pretty rare that um, a bookstore is going to shelve all my books in one area under McBride. Like that's not going to happen. So <laughs> what kind of books did you read growing up? Like what was your literary journey? Because I definitely, I was like a Brit lit tract, like anything else is like, I was a snob. I'm like, oh, this is the stuff I'm told is supposed to be like good and interesting and Shakespeare and all of that stuff. And I'm getting my teaching license and I'm taking an adolescent lit class. And it's the like runs the gamut of diversity and nonfiction and fiction and all of this stuff. And I'm like, I'm in this reading renaissance because I found out in my late 20s, I'm like, I missed out on so much. Like I was such a snob against sci-fi and I'm like, oh, if you want allegory, if you want like, like all of that highbrow literary stuff, modern day sci-fi is where you need to be. And like, oh, I, I got so angry when I realized how much good stuff. So now I feel like my tastes are like, yeah, I do this genre and need to switch over here, switch over here. Were you a diverse reader growing up? Or did you start kind of with one genre? 
Yeah, I, I read all kinds of stuff. I mean, as a kid, I, I mean, I definitely read like the Seusses and the Shel Silversteins and and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I think the the first time I remember really having books kind of of my own were when I discovered, uh, as if he didn't exist before, Pure as Anthony um, and the Zanth novels, which were they're just bizarrely funny, quirky, like time travel kind of sci-fi kind of fantasy like I, I don't even really know i mean there's like <laughs> centaurs and all kinds of stuff in them and they're yeah. just such so weird and i remember reading those going like oh like this can be a book i guess and um i liked lloyd alexander he had the um god i can't remember what it was called like the story the black cauldron was his and there was a series yeah. of i think five books priden or Prid, something like that was the town um and you know so i kind of read a lot of those but at the same time then i i found um a collection of encyclopedias that somebody had discarded we, we always had like this fall cleanup thing uh, i grew up in michigan and so like i just fall cleanup was an opportunity for me to cruise the neighborhood and like pick up free stuff and i got a, a collection of encyclopedias and i just thought like i'll just read these <laughs> And for whatever reason like that was something that was interesting to me and I, I don't remember getting through all of them but I certainly read like at least 12 or 13 of them so this is why you like reading the rules for D&D basically absolutely <laughs> speaking of diverse tastes in reading uh Michael reads newspapers from 100 years ago which I will remind myself, and maybe this this is a perfect excuse to finally post some of them, I guess. I've been saying that I will in on our socials. I, As I mentioned, my house, uh, was, my house was built in 1896, and I we kind of are, had our hand forced in some renovations recently, and they used <laughs> to just stuff newspapers in, like, the walls and are, like, in between the joists. And we've... I w it's really difficult to be doing demo work when you keep stepping away. It's very gingerly open. Try to unfold bits of newspaper that are stuffed in the walls to like find a date or find something that you can look up to be like, okay, if so-and-so was president, it's gotta be this time. Uh, and I did a lot of that and I have a lot of really cool pictures that I have been holding out on you guys, shared history listeners. So I'll post some of them. Basically, but Natalie is the worst person to have renovation done on her house that was <laughs> built in 1896. Oh, yeah. Oh, not 1896. Wait, what was it? It's 1896. Yeah. 1896. Yes. I bought, I found a postcard the other day that's legible, uh, that is postmarked 1910. Wow. Um, Honestly, I don't know how you go about your day. I don't. I might. <laughs> I'm either reading or doing an architect or an uh, a archaeological dig in my own home. But, <laughs> so I, I'll have to share some of these hundred year old newspapers with you, Michael, because you read newspapers from a hundred years ago. And I, I love it. I would totally be the exactly the same thing. I would it would be terrible. I would be trying to unfold them all and figure out a way to flatten them so you can read them. Um I just find them fascinating. I mean, my my introduction, I guess, to old newspapers was my dissertation work. Like I was trying to find out like how people actually wrote about these uprisings, you know, the different the different riots, you know, they used different terms for them, you know, like riot was negative and, you know, then like 
I can't think of the positive one now. I'm sorry, but Haymarket, um, Haymarket affair. Yes, right. It was fancy. Or a massacre. <laughs> yes. Depending on who's writing about it. Yeah, so I, I found that really interesting, and I wanted those kind of accounts. Um, and you know, letters don't survive as much, and journals don't, but newspapers were all the all the rage back then. And I found like all these awesome databases that had, you know, stuff going back to the 1700s even, and I just I couldn't get enough of it. So then I found I guess it was probably I don't know, 2019 maybe was when I started doing the hundred years ago thing. And it was just kind of a whim. I was bored and I needed something to do. And um, I thought, I wonder what was going on 100 years ago. And you can do that in a database. You just plug in the date, crank back the dial on the year and, and see what there is. And you just kind of scan through the headlines. And I, I mean, the headlines are just really interesting. You know, like when you, when you go back to, I guess at that time, um, you know, I was, I was looking at these things where there were all these um burglaries and uh bandits like bandits kept coming up i was like what, what the fuck are bandits doing here like what's going on who are these people and <laughs> it was just kind of hilarious that like i mean i think of bandits as being such an old-timey thing and yet like in the cities bandits would break into someone's home and steal stuff or bandits would uh commandeer somebody's automobile and um, steal their wedding ring or their engagement ring and then hold it for hostage. And like, I don't know, like I started like that story hooked me and I ended up following it for several weeks to like figure out what happened. Like, did they catch the guy? Like what happened? I don't know. <laughs> I am so bad at research projects, at essays, anything, because I, like in a library, I'll pull out all these primary sources or books and I'm like, okay, I'm looking for a very specific piece of information. Oh, but this is interesting. Two hours later, I'm like, oh, wait, hold on. Oh, I, that's not what I was looking for at all. <laughs> we are I definitely, we are definitely kindred spirits there. Cause that, that is the hardest. I, I love the research part. It, yeah. it is so hard to figure out like, A, when you have enough, because I don't know, the older I get, the less certain I am of anything. And so it's like, I'll read something, I'll think it's true. And I'll be like, well, I better find a couple more just to back it up. And then, you know, like at which point are you like, I'm pretty confident that's right i guess <laughs> so very serious question being a hundred year old newspaper reader what are your views and thoughts and feelings on microfiche i love microfiche <laughs> absolutely you know it's funny I, my my librarians and this was where i was spoiled as an academic because i could just summon any information i wanted uh through my library and it was such an underutilized thing but I reached the point where my librarians at the at the academic libraries were like, you need to cool it because I was requesting like old dictionaries because I wanted to see like how the definition changed over time. And mm -hmm. eventually I ended up making relationships and they're like, you don't need the whole thing, right? Like, can I just scan the pages you want and just send them to you? <laughs> Um, no, I need the whole thing. And, and then at one point, sure, we're understaffed, please. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't appreciate that. It was, it was a thing I thought that was just kind of a gift. Um, and at one what point, what is this dissertation on? No dissertation. I'm just, I'm just curious. <laughs> you, you get weird looks, you know. And at one point, I, I really fell in love with the author Louise Erdrich, and I wanted to hear conversations that she had with her husband. Um, 
he ended up committing suicide. And so like, there's a period of time where you actually, they were collaborating, like they're co-authors, like writing each other's books and editing them. And I was really interested in that. And there was supposed to be this audio book where they read and then they talked about it afterwards. And so I requested it and it was taking a really long time. And so I asked, what's, what happened? And they said, well, there's only like five copies of this and they're in on cassette and they're in England and we can't send them through the mail like we can't send them over a plane because it might get demagnetized so they are coming on ship and I was like oh shit I had no idea I am so oh, sorry <laughs> Natalie I have a production question for you do we have to get into history because I really would just like to continue to nerd out um and you know what I know I said I was excited for some history but I don't care I just want to talk about well, Michael how do you feel about JSTOR <laughs> Talk about it's a solid database. I prefer Project Muse myself, but oh, I love a good Project Muse. Yes, <laughs> um, Cass, I at least have you. I am always, I'm always steering the ship. I happen to know, <laughs> but why? But why? Why do you have to? <laughs> because somebody has to, <laughs> and it's not gonna be you. All right, um, I'm gonna kick Natalie out of the Zoom meeting. No, no, no. no. <laughs> um, well, but so, Cass, I happen to know that all of this hundred-year-old newspaper digging is how Michael found the topic that he is, the story he's come to tell us, and that he is also well, that would make sense. Good damn book about. So, um, Michael, tell us a story. Yeah. So. I was doing my 100-year new reading newspaper thing, and one of the headlines was uh, Vandal, which was also a very common thing that was in the newspapers at the time that I was just I was always interested in. Vandal shoots painting. And I was like, what the hell? Like, what would motivate somebody to attack a piece of art like that? And of course, at the time, present day, people oh. are acting out and painting you know, attacking art as a way of talking about climate change and those things as well. So it was like a weird parallel. Um, but I read the article and the more I read the article, the more confused I was and the more questions I had, because the article talks about this guy sees this painting, he shoots at it, it doesn't, it breaks the glass, but it doesn't damage the painting. And then they talk to the shopkeeper, who's also the artist, um, and his name is Merton Clavette. And I was like, I've never heard of anybody named Merton or Clavette. Like, those are interesting names you just don't hear these days. And he, Merton Clavette, claimed this painting was worth $20,000 and that it had um, had debuted an art exhibit in New York and it had caused quite the stir. And then the description was um, Woodrow Wilson's head on a platter with a dark arm around it and a stormy sea in the background. And I was like, I'd like to see that painting. So I tried to find it. Um, and that's really like where the project begins then because I am I do my internet thing. You know, I dig around in JSTOR and I dig around in Project Muse and all the databases and the old newspapers I can find. And I can't find any other references to this painting that supposedly caused a stir in New York uh, three years prior. And I can't find anything else about the shooting of the painting. 
And I'm just puzzled. Like these holes in history just kind of boggle my mind. I'm like, I don't understand. How can this thing have happened? And nobody written about it when we have the internet and all of these resources available to us. Um, so I ended up finding a website called clavette.com and they had a bunch of his paintings and I just start browsing through them trying to find anything that looked like Woodrow Wilson which I realized <laughs> I didn't really know what he looked like so I had to look up pictures of Woodrow Wilson <laughs> side quest because yes, I just I... googled Merton Clavette quickly just to get a visual phenomenal mustache isn't it yeah the little goatee so, and everything oh my god so good so bushy <laughs> and I know I I don't know what Woodrow Wilson looks like but I know he doesn't look like that so I assume that that was Merton it, it was, yeah. He did some self-portraits, and and actually, I mean, he had such an interesting life. There's all kinds of documentation about him, um, which is also just kind of puzzling how he disappears from history books as well. Um, but anyway, on a whim, I wrote contact us on that little clavette page, and said, "Hi, I'm looking for this painting," and I explained like where it came from, and asked if they knew anything about it. Um, and they wrote back, and they're like, "We've never heard of that painting." And what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> and we ended up, we ended up chatting. <laughs> yeah, right. And I shared the article with them and they're like, oh, that's really interesting. We have a bunch of his stuff. We've never seen that one before or heard of that. And I quickly realized like these are living descendants of Clavette. And um, before I know it, I'm asking them if I can write a book because they have this archive of all his stuff. And I think maybe somewhere in there, I will find that painting. Um, spoiler alert, I don't, unfortunately. So, Still, I've never found it? No, it's got to be out there somewhere. I mean, problem is he sold so many paintings. And what I've learned is there is no good database. Like, if you want to find a painting, there does not appear to be a database where somebody's like, oh, you need to go to the Louvre. Oh, you need to go over here. Yeah. Or, you, you know, like... it. I don't know how it works um, in terms of finding those. I mean, I guess that's another project is to assemble that database where you can find any art and know where it is. Yes. We need like an IMDB for art, and we also need to get Nicolas Cage on this national treasure situation. Oh, somebody didn't call Nicolas Cage. There's probably a map on the back of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That's your next book. <laughs> this is how the nonfiction work inspires the spectacle or the Michael, I'm not gonna tell you what to write, but also your next book will be. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I'm always looking for suggestions. So. <laughs> I the the description of this painting sounds like I, I just want to either feed it to an AI or to an artist because it sounds like if you've ever played the game feed it to an artist don't give i know i don't want to feed it to an AI. but it but like you know when you play the game where you where it's basically like telephone but with drawings where you like write a phrase and the next person has to like draw the phrase and the next person has to write what they think the phrase was and it just it sounds like the like a fifth round answer in that game of just like woodrow wilson's head on a platter or wrapped in a shadow it doesn't which i'm i i just i google imaged merton clavette and all most of what came up was just his art and it's very impressionistic kind of abstract so now i'm like 
what would his version of Woodrow Wilson's head on a platter look like? So he did do things, most of his art is that way. And, and that's another piece, I mean, I mean, jumping all over the place on, on the timeline for him, but like at the end of his life, that is what he is as a painter, but that's not how he begins life. I mean, he yeah. has this like whole crazy career in the circus and Buffalo Bill's Wild West show and all this stuff. But then by the time he starts painting in the 20, 1920s, he, um, well, I guess he, it's a little earlier than that, 1915, whatever, but um, he dies in 1931. So in that 15 years, he goes from really not painting or um, exhibiting or anything like that to selling paintings worldwide and being the only American to be invited to Paris to have an ex exhibition with the Impressionists. Like, it's crazy, like how big and influential he was at the at the time and then how he just kind of fizzled after he died. It's wild, because so. when you think of American art typically from that period, like, it, his, we'll put um, pictures on our socials, listeners, but I... I was so, I don't know, just so shocked seeing that. I'm like, that's not what I was expecting an American artist in the early 1910s in New York to be painting. Well, and he, he did do sculpture as well. And so there are some paintings earlier that are more more realistic. Um, my, my favorite sculpture of his, and, and definitely the one that gets the most attention, is his um, sculpture of Lincoln in the nude um, called Rail Splitter. Um, which is <laughs> just fantastic. Oh, God, we love a sexy Lincoln. We love a I'm sexy Lincoln right now. Podcast. Well, and, he, and he, he tells, I mean, when they asked him why he painted or why he sculpted Lincoln in the nude, he said all of the, uh, all the photographs of Lincoln and all the portraiture was just so sad. He was always, he, he was very physically fit, but he was all covered up in uniforms and, you know, clothing. And so he wanted to show off the physique. I mean, the guy did literally like build log cabins and stuff. So and he was, Andy was like, oh, Andy was a wrestler. Andy was a licensed bartender. He's you know what? Now that I think about it, any like visual representation, whether it be a photo or a painting or anything representing Lincoln, whether it was contemporary of his time or now, he's really sad. Like he's so like contemplative, morose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he did have a shitty life, and definitely some bad things happened to him for sure. Uh, understatement, I, mean, I suppose. That. There's that. <laughs> but you know, everyone loves to he, glorify Lincoln, and then they're like, he was just a little sad, sad emo boy. A little sad the, boy. The other the other <laughs> problem is like photography at the time. You had to sit still, and like you know, daguerreotypes required. You, you couldn't smile because you might move yeah. and then you get like weird ghost images and all that stuff but yeah. but yeah he, he but, definitely but comes across as dour badass, and like yeah those bad like badass like mean muggers and he's like oh yeah little, little pouty it's very he's okay. very eeyore he's depicted very eeyore <laughs> they're like yeah i don't know if i had to run the civil war <laughs> i'd be i'd be a little eeyore too yeah. thanks for noticing um <laughs> Shout out to Abraham Lincoln forever. Uh, Michael, do you know about sexy Lincoln sculpture in Chicago? Natalie, is that there? I, I don't honestly. When you I said try that, to bring I was this like, up whenever is there I more can. of it? Like, I'm I'm intrigued. It's in Edgewater. It's a bronze statue in the Edgewater neighborhood in Chicago. A lot of people who refer to it as Abraham Lincoln. Uh, <laughs> he, his his sleeves are cuffed, uh, like rolled and cuffed. 
he's sitting barefoot on like a like a stump. Uh, he's got like the top couple of his buttons undone. He looks windswept, and he's just like, like full holding... Daniel Steele. Oh yeah, he's just like holding a book, resting a book on his on his leg because big reader. Uh, so sensitive. So sensitive that that Abraham Lincoln. So... I, I love that more people are appreciating Lincoln for more than his poutiness. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's bring the sex back to Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Clearly, you know, and you know what? Maybe this is why I connect with uh, Merton so much. Yeah, Merton I saw just it. decided that I connect with him. <laughs> He's like, I'm not gonna hide this hottie. I'm gonna, I'm gonna chisel him out of stone the way that he deserves. <laughs> I'm assuming it's a stone. Uh, you said sculpture, so clay. Yeah, I, I don't say. I think it's. I think it's a bronze. I'm. I'm not sure. I mean, it has. I've only really seen black and white photos of it. So. Um, but I'll, I can send you one. I, I don't remember if I found it online or if it came from the, the family, their estate. I mean, they just have piles of stuff. And so, like, you know, it really was a researcher's dream because instead of having to find things, I just came up with questions. And I was like, do you have any of this? And they'd be like, sure. And they would scan stuff and send it over to me. So They're your like, own got, personal database. It was, it was awesome. I mean, it just really was a dream that way. <laughs> do we think – do we think – given the accolades and the like the fact that he was invited to france like do we do art if you were like an art history major would you know who clavette was or do we think that there's just so much art that gets art history gets forced down everybody's throat that there's just not time for everybody and clavette's just been relegated to a footnote i, I think more of the latter i, I actually started life uh, at my undergrad thinking I would be an artist and then turn to art history. Um, I never finished that way. I actually finished in creative writing, but really only because that was the path of least resistance and <laughs> the most credits. It gets really exhausting. I was a history major, history and theater major for a while. And when people ask me why I switched from my second major from history to creative writing, I say, because I got real sick of writing papers where I couldn't make shit up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I think, I mean, if you look at like the Ashcan movement stuff, and if you look at like Impressionist and, you know, even, you know, even more of the abstract things that come, like, I feel like Clavette is kind of there in, in this weird way. And I, I've never, I've talked to several art history people and I've shown his work and asked them if they had ever come across it because I've just curious and um nobody really has and when they see it and they hear more about it they're definitely intrigued and kind of interested and um i think it is just kind of a, a crapshoot you know who makes it to the history uh who gets taught in the classes because you have you know a lot of those survey classes cover hundreds of years <laughs> you know it's like you could spend a lot Natalie, of time just on the renaissance we're here if you wanted for. to <laughs> Yes. That's why we are here and that's why we brought Michael. We are filling in the cracks. Yeah. Also, you casually just dropped Buffalo Bill. He's a performer. Like, give us give, like wait, paint a picture of yes. Merton for me. Yes. True to true to true to my brand. That's your Chicago tie-in because Buffalo Bill Wild West show is at the eighteen ninety-three Chicago World's Fair. Okay, carry on. Okay, yeah. my Iowa tie-in. Do you know Buffalo Bill is born in Iowa? Okay. <laughs> it's not a competition, though, but I win. <laughs> so this, this was not required for reading for the book, but when I found out that Clavette, and I'll, 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 I'll paint the picture you're talking about, but 
Buffalo Bill, what I learned when I was reading more about him, there were lots of Buffalo Bills. Like that was a, a slang name that you would call somebody. And he just kind of took it and was like, no, nope, that's my name now. And so there were lots of Buffalo Bills. Like if you look at the newspaper, there's all these people like sprinkled around being referred to as Buffalo Bill. Um, but then there's Buffalo Bill Cody. And then like, that's that's the guy who we think of as that. I just thought that was kind of funny. I was like, why is that a derogatory name that you would call somebody? <laughs> but... Oh, so it's kind of like calling someone like um, uh, like a negative oh, Nancy. Yeah, like a negative Nancy or a. And oh, someone shoot, actually, I don't know in my head. They were they were the negative Nancy. Yeah, negative Nancy Cody. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> there are lots of those. So that's wild. Clavette, he he's born in Wisconsin. Uh, what ends up happening is later in his life, he claims he was born 20 years previous and on a ship in the Indian Ocean. Um, so for a long time, he lied about how old he was and where he was born. But he, he was born in Wisconsin, um, which is, you know, I'm in Minnesota, so it's just like four hours away where he's actually born. Um, and he had kind of a weird life. His son, his father died when he was like eight, I think, fairly, fairly young. And then when he was 12, his mom decided that they should move to um, Wyoming because Wyoming was a territory. It wasn't even a state at the time, but they were kind of progressive in terms of thinking about women's rights and their ability to vote, um, which is weird to think of Wyoming as being progressive, but you know, whatever. <laughs> I was going to say, hard, <laughs> hard left turn from that. <laughs> and she, she ran like a... Things have changed. <laughs> Definitely. Um, she ran a printing press there for a while. And so Clavette learned to like set type and do some of those things. And then she decided she'd had enough and she went and joined the Seventh-day Adventists and ditched her family. And so Clavette was kind of raised by his older siblings. Um, and he had four of them, I think. Um, I didn't spend a lot of time on them because I Honestly, I wasn't that interested in them. They didn't seem to mm. live as interesting lives as Clavette did. Um, but then a year or so after that happens, he ditches out and joins the Wild West show. Um, and he learns to, he, he knew how to ride a horse. And from everything we can tell, that was really all you needed to join the Buffalo Wild West show was to be able to ride a horse. Um, I think living in the territory and, of Wyoming, you're legally required to yeah. know how to ride a horse. As and, well. and that was a traveling show. So, you know, it would come through yeah. and it just kind of, if you looked the part and you fit in or asked or just helped out, you just kind of got swept up in it. You know, I mean, yeah. people talk about running away and joining the circus and Clavette joins the circus next. But like, all you got to do is look like you belong and then you're part of it. So you might not get paid, but you get like carried along <laughs> for the ride at least. So um, adventure. Yes. Right. Experience. Experience points are all the rage. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> but yeah, from there he, um, he kind of played the part of like an Indian brave. And so he got shot a lot. He claimed he had nine bullet wounds in his back and arrow wounds and got stabbed a bunch. Um, because they acted things out and they weren't as careful as we would be today. Um, and the problem with a lot of his stories is you don't know how true they are. I mean, this guy mm -hmm. has been lying about how old he is forever and only seems to set the record straight when he's on his deathbed um, much later. So, um, but 
Buffalo Bill knew Barnum, um, and the two of them had kind of competing things, but they were knew one another, and that was kind of the the cross point for Clavette. He just kind of hopped from one to the next, um, and in a weird kind of know, twist of fate, um, Mark Twain also knew Cody and Barnum. And we know that Clavette also knows Mark Twain. So like there's this weird group of famous people that all kind of meet up at this point. Um, and Twain is interested in Clavette because he's this weird kind of mysterious person. And he, he meets him a couple different times throughout his life. Um, You've kind Twain of described like the way that you're describing this group coming together, like everyone just knows each other and they're all in the same place at the same time. My brain immediately went to, this is the most American sounding version of Midnight in Paris <laughs> <laughs> that I, I like would 100% watch. It's just this fever dream of Buffalo Bill Cody, P.T. Barnum, Mark Twain, and this just weird Clovet dude. Just swap <laughs> out the Hemingway and, and everybody. Yeah, just... <laughs> Yeah. Set, it, set it in the, in America, put them on the road in the Midwest, in the plains. <laughs> well, I mean, like, and all those crossovers make sense that that's this weird, like, mysterious guy because, you know, Bill Cody's Wild West show was all about tall tales, you know, larger than life. Same with P.T. Barnum. And, you know, Mark Twain was always about spinning a yarn. And if he's trying to fit and clearly is fitting well into these worlds it's like yeah who knows who i am and i do this and i'm that and no one knows and, and he's young enough he absorbs all that stuff so you know i yeah. don't know exactly when he started lying about how old he was um but you know by the time he's 20 he's saying he's 40 and he's a frenchman born on the indian ocean so you know it's i, I can't help but think he picked that up from all the tall tales that he was surrounded oh, yeah. by and thinking about promotion, like it's much more interesting than I was born in Wisconsin mm -hmm. and my dad died and my mom left. And if you're living this artist lifestyle, you got you got to have some, you got to have a hook. Yeah, I was immediately skeptical of the act, true value of this painting when the fact that Clavette is the artist is the one who is like, oh yes, it's worth so much, and it's it was. It really stirred the pot immediately made me go okay but the more i learn about clavette i don't know that i trust that mustache <laughs> respectfully yeah i love good reason i mean he you know i mean in the circus he learns to be an acrobat he learns to be a, a slack wire artist um which you know he picked that's why his mustache wire. is so big it's full of <laughs> secrets yeah i mean he just kind of he's like a sponge for everything around him and it just kind of just kind of snowballs and, you know he at some point leaves the circus and lives in seattle for a time like he um did. because you know you gotta retire at the coast for a little while the circus <laughs> to seattle pipeline is very strong <laughs> From Seattle, he moves to San Francisco, and there he starts like performing in parks for kind of free. Um, and he's experimenting with being a magician and um, you know just kind of doing sleight of hand kind of tricks. And um, it just so happens that that is where the Orpheum circuit is born. And the Orpheum circuit, there were kind of two circuits. Uh, the Orpheum circuit was essentially Chicago and West, 
and then I'm blanking on the other one I should remember, but it's on the, it's basically New York and then some assorted states. Um, and the New York one was a much more profitable one, but the Orpheum circuit was essentially like, there are a bunch of theaters around this big country of ours and we can have traveling shows to entertain people. And what Orf what the Orpheum group did to make them different than the others is they paid people while they were traveling. So their performers were making money while they were cruising from one place to another, generally on trains, um, where the East Circuit was like, no, you only get money when you perform. And they didn't have as far to go, but it was attractive you know, to consistently have a paycheck um, to be on the Orpheum Circuit. Basically just have a per diem. It's great. Yeah. Right. You got food, you got transportation, um, you know, you didn't need a whole lot more. And, you know, as you had downtime on the train, you traded secrets and taught each other tricks and that kind of stuff. And he just kind of assembled a, a whole litany of acts that he would do. Um, so he did, um, he was a silhouettist, which we would call shadow puppets, um, you know, and Michael, was... this guy's kind of a snooze. I don't know why you, you wanted to write a book yeah. about this guy. Like, imagine. what did you even have to put down? <laughs> well, as I read, I was like, what the hell is a You probably had more to cut than more to include. <laughs> they're, they're definitely, you know, the, the balance was I wanted it to be nonfiction. So, like, I could yeah. kind of assume some things were true, but I tried to really yeah. stick to the things that I could concretely verify. Um, and, you know, I... is a Dos Equis commercial. <laughs> mustache and everything oh, you interesting know. Man. also silhouettist reminds me of bandit and vandal it's just like oh yeah this is our cooler more hip way of saying shadow puppeteer puppets. shadow puppet <laughs> yeah not even puppeteer just shadow puppets yeah and oh, and God. in addition to the so the way the shadow puppet or silhouettist act would go is he would be in front of a big black screen they would dim the lights he would have electric light because that was new at the time and it was consistent and he would do elaborate shadow puppets and sing and act out things while he did that. And that was kind of his act. Um, and it would last 30 to 45 minutes. Um, the, the, the different circuits at the time, what was the vaudeville that was really interesting to me was learning kind of the hierarchy. Um, you know, they had kind of an opening act, which was something that nobody really cared about. And then there was like a second act, which was supposed to start bringing people in. And the third act was like, okay, this is actually somebody you'd be interested in. Then there's kind of a lull for four and five. Then six and seven were like headliner acts. Um, and then by the time you got to either eight or nine, that was literally the, the, the thing where you wanted people to leave. So sometimes they would just have somebody come out and draw or sculpt or tell really bad jokes and encourage people to leave because once you paid your money you got to stay there and you could you could just keep watching the cycle as it went because it would just start over again when it got to the end of it um and so colvette you know his as a silhouettist he was performing as a headliner act i can't imagine going to a theater to see somebody do shadow puppets like and paying good money for that but that was the thing. <laughs> I also love the idea of get the fuck out of the theater or we're going to make someone start drawing. Yeah. <laughs> like this is going to, this is our crowd control. Like, do you really want to see me sculpt? Please leave. <laughs> and there was an art to that too. I mean, there were certain people yeah. that looked forward to that. You know, I imagine 
you know, some of our comedians that really enjoy hecklers would like thrive in that environment. Oh yeah. <laughs> Just kind of like, have fun with on. that. But so talking about other fancy words, instead of acrobat, you went by equilibrist. Um, you know, like you just kind of dress it up and make it sound a little sexier than it is. And, you know, so he did all of those different things. And I would imagine like, you know, when you go show city to city, you had the luxury of being able to redo your exact show again, if you wanted to, because this one hadn't seen it. And the news might travel and say, Clavette put on a great Silhouetta show, but unless you actually see it, you don't really know, you know, what he did. Um, but he varied it up and he started working in magic. Um, and then before the end of vaudeville, he's known as the great Covet. And he then branches out and does his own thing. And he tours the world. He like goes to India, he goes to England, he performs for the King at the time. And like, just, I mean, it's crazy to think about the amount of ground he traveled and the experiences he acquired in this relatively short life. Yeah. Cause so he... it's, he died at 62. That's so, that's so much. He did so much. <laughs> and just reinvented himself over and over again. So, you know, like what he does before he paints, right, around 1900, he decided he wanted to have a family. So they moved to Greenwich Village and they have a daughter. Um, and he's like, well, what can I do now? And so he starts writing books. And he ends up writing, he, I think he claimed at some point he wrote 60-some books. Um, I was able to interlibrary loan about 14 of them. And then the family had probably five or six that I hadn't already gotten through the library. So, I mean, at, at least 20 or 30 books, legitimately. A confirmed, a confirmed 20. <laughs> yeah, right? And they were crazy, like, weird philosophy, poetry kind of stuff. And they were weirdly popular at the time. So... So when you first introduce us to Merton, you know, 20 minutes ago, I'm thinking, oh, here's an artist. He's an American artist. Oh, he went to Paris. He was the only American invited to the exposition. I looked at his work. Oh, it's all this abstract, whatever. And then you kind of drop, oh, he was in Buffalo Bill, Vaudeville, whatever. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a cute short stint in the beginning of an artist's career. But it also sounds like, while yes, he was maybe doing a lot of this art, artistic stuff, he didn't become a painter until kind of towards the end of all his wild whatnot. And yet he was such an accomplished, this is so weird. Like it's, when you think of someone jumping from thing to thing to thing to thing, it's, it's that kind of vagabond lifestyle of like, oh, you know, relatively unknown. But it sounds like a lot of the stuff he did, he was he wildly popular. Yeah. yeah. And e then he's like, yeah, I'm going to go to the Paris Exposition. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, just talking about other people he knew, he knew Houdini. Like Houdini and him. I mean, this is one of these other weird things, right? They both are on the Orpheum circuit and they are both magicians. And the guy who is running the Orpheum circuit is the one who picked Houdini up in St. Paul and said, like, you know what? Your act, it's garbage. The only thing people come for is the, ha the handcuff thing. You're really good at getting out of stuff. Make that your act and forget the magic. You're not a magician. And now that's not Clavette. That's the guy who's running the Orpheum circuit. But the two of them meet up. And one of the things that Houdini and <laughs> Clavette 
struggle with throughout their life is to try to figure out how to convince Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that they are not actually magi magicians. Like Houdini's like, the key is in my shoe. And Clavetta is like, this is the sleight of hand I'm doing. And for whatever reason, Doyle like can't, he can't wrap his brain around it. And he is convinced that these people are actual magicians. So much so that then he goes on to like learn about being a spiritualist. And like that is something that like he learned from Clavet. It's like, what the fuck? Like this is such a weird ass story. Sherlock Holmes cannot figure out how the magic trick works. Also, this just feels like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or like History of the World Part Two or something of like, oh, like Martin Clavet feels like not a real person it's oh i'm making a movie and i need just a random interesting character to be able to accidentally interact with he's forrest oh. gump yeah. martin clavet is forrest gump <laughs> figured it out i, I love oh it and, and it does feel like that i mean it's kind of it, reading through like reading through letters and journals and all the stuff that the the family shared with me it was like holy shit like this is like a who's who of the time it's crazy you know, he just like, oh, yeah, he just casually mentions like, oh, yeah, I know Houdini. And, um, you know, and you get like these letters from people. And I mean, the other thing is like, where did he learn to sculpt? He learned from Rodin, like the thinker guy. That's who taught him sculpting. And where did no. he learn that? He learned it while he was just traveling. So, you know, he had like some downtime and he hung out with Rodin and learned how to sculpt as you do. <laughs> like I like, like, I feel like. And I'm just going to keep coming up with analogies. Merton Clavette is, we didn't start the fire. Like, can we pick out every cultural reference and include Merton Clavette in it? Yes, we can. The reason that you can't, you're going to keep coming up with analogies is that you can't, nobody can put Merton Clavette in a corner. You can't define him. You can't. He's no baby. You're not putting him in a corner. He's He's a little bit of everything. I'm baffled. This is this is this is welcome to my brief TED talk on uh, the hill I will die on of why it is so greatly detrimental for all for why capitalism sucks because it forces everybody to specialize now and how that is so detrimental to everything. Because can you imagine if somebody made Merton Clavette pick a lane? Can you imagine? <laughs> also, Honestly, I think this is why Broadway is the last true art form because you have to be a triple, quadruple threat to be on Broadway, which is why all of them are now making their way into movies. Like, this is a man who settled down as a painter. He was like, oh, I'm time for me to retire and settle down and start a family. I'll choose the incredibly financially secure path of... Being a painter and a scorer. I already lost my ear in the gunslinger show. I don't need to cut I've it off. I've been shot nine times. <laughs> <laughs> but look at my shadow puppets. Do you think that his bullet holes, I wish he had like a clean shot straight through and he used it for the shadow puppetry. Oh, that'd be spectacular. <laughs> I know that that's not how bullet holes work, but it is in Looney Tunes. So let me have that. I mean, Merton Clavet is a Looney Tune. Like, that's <laughs> wild. Is he is Wiley Coyote. Yeah. And you discover this guy because you read a random blurb in a newspaper. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the weird thing. It's just how stupidly happenstance it was, you know, and I, 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 I come back to that and I'm like, if I hadn't read that article and then if I hadn't wanted to see the painting and I hadn't like followed my stupid whimsy to like figure out like how I could possibly find that painting, like I would not have learned all this stuff. And it really was, uh, it was, it was a gift to be able to learn about it. And, you know, like you said, I mean, it's, I think there are these people that just kind of like live this kind of weird charmed life where they can constantly reinvent themselves. And I'm sure there are people who do that now, but I don't know that stories get written about them. I, I can, I, mean... I can tell you one story about, um, my thesis advisor, um, his, one of his very good friends, uh, right out of high school, bought a cranberry bog because he wanted a cranberry bog and like you naturally and my thesis advisor had a choice to buy into the cranberry bog or go to graduate school and become an educator and he chose that path and then a couple of years later his friend sold that cranberry bog to ocean spray and made Fuck a pile off. of money i was like don't say ocean spray oh my god so he made a pile of money cranberry and then he bog. was like what do i do with all this money you know i've always wanted to make pizza and so he started making a pizza. He had a pizzeria because he just kind of thought it was fun. And it caught on and it franchised. And he was like, oh. You say Pizza oh. Hut, I swear to God. No, it's not. It was a, <laughs> it was a much more local chain in, yeah. in and around Boston. And I don't remember what it was. I'm sorry. But then he was like, oh, now I've made a pile of money with this. What what else should I do? And he happened to go visit a grave site um, to see like relatives. And he noticed how crappy a lot of the headstones were. And so he experimented with trying to figure out how to clean them. And he came up with a cleaning solution to clean tombstones. And people in the society around the cemetery were like, hey, we'd like that product. Would you help us clean the?" And he sold, like, he literally just did this thing over and over again because he fell into these things. But I think you have to be willing and open to it and willing to risk your life, I suppose, to do it. But Well, and I mean, that that just makes me think about you talking about you know, like why it's hard to put you in a bookstore because you're in, you do all these different genres, you know, and Martin Clavel, when we heard, you know, oh, he's an artist in the Paris exhibition. Like, how do we not know about him in art history? Well, because he got shot nine times and then he wanted to be a sculptor and then he was a shadow puppet. And like, you know, it's, it's history is not good at keeping I mean if you can't be kept in a box you can't be put in a history book and it's wild and and that's the shit we want to read and hear about and see and those are the people we want to know and that's the kind of stuff honestly as a kid if you had told me this history I'd be like oh shit I'm in like tell me more yeah. of this yeah. you know instead of memorizing dates and locations and battle names and that kind of crap I yeah. I want to like put Martin Clavette's like obituary on the wall and like throw a dart at it and then whatever occupation it lands on be like that's what I'm gonna be when I grow up that's what I wanted I wish I'd done that as a child just because it just could be anything I you mentioning that it was that you can't you history doesn't do well with people necessarily with people who like it can't immediately kind of be like they were a chemist or chemists, they were a chemist and a educator, like, and give them like one, one or two titles. I was very curious what Wikipedia did. If the abbreviated one is it just says American painter, but on his to Wikipedia's credit, 
on his Wikipedia page, it does say uh, Merton, Clive- Merton Clavet was an American painter, magician, writer, vaudevillain, and entertainer. So they, they found some larger umbrellas to fit him under, but at least they named multiple things. Because that, that always makes me laugh when it's like you stumble onto somebody in history because they do X but their Wikipedia page is like, they were a politician. And it's like, okay, but like, that's a very, that's a simplification. It's a gross simplification. Yeah, it's really hard to compart- find a place for somebody that you can't compartmentalize, you know? And yeah. it, it's weird because when we, I think in general, when people look back to history and the people they point to, they weren't just one thing. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. Miss Jefferson, you know, does all kinds of crap and, you know, you wonder why. Well, he was literally able to read every book that was published during his lifetime. Like, you could. Like, you can't yeah. read every book nowadays. You have I'm to pick and choose. <laughs> you and me both. I, I think last year I set a record for myself of 166 books. That's that's how many I read in a year. I don't know. You said 45 already this year, though? Yeah, last year I wanted to read, uh, I think, just like, my, my goal for last year was only like 30 books. And then I had to basically move out of my house for a big chunk of the year. And I read 120. Nice. Uh, that was an, a new, it is fun when you like log into something like Storygraph, which I prefer or uh, Goodreads. And it'll be like, you've, you, you're, you've hit 393% of your goal or something like that. And you're like, now, what was the, is it, is it Storygraph that you said it, it's like book reads, but it gives you a lot more specified. Storygraph is the greatest. or whatever. It's not owned by Amazon. So there's 10 points for it right there. And <laughs> it will, it gives you beautiful visual data on your reading. And we love. Like it gives you a lot more specified, like. Yeah. It breaks um, down. Categories of stuff. You, it's not just like romance, drama. History. Well, Goodreads doesn't. Goodreads doesn't give. Well, I guess you. There's a. Nobody uses Goodreads for that. Um, but yeah, it'll be like genres. It'll it'll split up. It'll split things up by multiple tags a little bit better. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you have to input everything in that, or how does it work? Does it like partner with like a device or something that you're reading on, or? It doesn't. Well, I read on a Kindle, and Amazon owns goodreads so you can export your good if you've used goodreads you can export your goodreads data and uh upload that that file to storygraph and it'll pull it all and have it all and then you just have to remember from there on out to just mark i mostly just mark when i started a book and when i finished a book i don't track as i'm going but i'm also a lunatic so i also yeah, enter confirm. these things on Goodreads. I use both, but um, Michael, I first of all, I sorry, I'm I'm kind of bored. I feel like we didn't really uh, talk about that much stuff today. Also, smooth. just kidding, I'm kind of super annoyed with you because I'm like, I I feel like you brought up like 500 big topics that I want to dive into that he did all of these, and I'm like. Okay, well, we need like, uh, like, there needs to be a podcast just about <laughs> Merton Clavel. And I'm truly annoyed. I'm like, there is so much more. And if we don't find and I say we, as in you, but now I'm invested. If we don't find that 
fucking painting? I'm, hey, if you oh can help God. find it, I'm all for it. Or the listeners I'm, or anybody, like, I just want to see it. It's got to be somewhere. Parents, addicts. <laughs> Nicholas Cage, if you are listening, get on this national treasure the shit. I, there, there has to be a map on the back. Like, at this point, I would not even be surprised. Yeah, why else would everybody be hiding it from us? Which is <laughs> I know, it's been secreted away somewhere, for sure. <laughs> so normally... We ask our guests what's something that they discovered, but your entire topic is something. <laughs> the story that you brought for us today is a discovery that has just birthed another thousand discoveries. But I suppose what uh, other other than the entire life of Martin Clavette, which by the way, listeners, Michael has a book, if you have not in, intuited that from what we've discussed. <laughs> Uh, a book on Clavet coming out. Michael, what is that book called? Uh, it's going to simply be called The Great Clavet. Um, and there is a, a webpage, greatclavet.com, that is being built and all that. Um, and yeah, it should be coming out in June. The hope, and I'm still trying to work this out, um, is that we will find a way to partner with the Greenwich Village Historical Society, um, where Clavette lived the last 15, 20 years of his life. Um, and we're, we're still trying to work out those details, but that would be my dream for the book launch. So, um, but you should be able to find it everywhere books are sold. So, Again, Michael, I'm not telling you what to write or how to write, but if you could work in Bill and Teg's excellent adventure in the title, I, I mean, <laughs> I feel like it just makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I also you, I, I like the simplicity of the title though because how else how do you if you tried to t cover this the worlds this man has touched you'd need seventeen subtitles so just the great Clavette <laughs> is like perfectly broad just like him I, I've learned um, yeah with other books that it's you gotta be careful what you use so for whatever reason I when we started writing the mid-grade books the Thompson twins I was listening to the Thompson twins and I was like oh that'd be a fun name and I didn't really think about the fact that like when you search for the Thompson twins my books are not going to be the first thing that come up <laughs> I will say in that sense for your research Martin Clavette really did you a solid by having yes. an incredibly unique <laughs> first and last name but especially first name of definitely you weren't gonna. You weren't gonna stumble upon any other Merton Clavettes <laughs> of the early 1900s. So you asked what else I discovered, and yeah. I, I did. I, I there is something that I discovered recently, which is um, selling vintage T-shirts, which is you know. I mean, if you have a vintage clothing store, great. But like, I didn't realize online that people were interested in those. So I went through. I was just. I like getting rid of things. So, I, you know, when I finish a book, I give it to somebody or I drop it off at one of those free libraries or donate mm -hmm. it or something. And um, I was going through all of my kind of childhood memory boxes that my parents moved out of their attic into my attic. Um, <laughs> and in there, I had all these concert t-shirts and they were well-worn and loved. And I was about to throw them out. And for whatever reason, I Googled one and I realized that they were going for like $100. And I was like, this is this doesn't make any sense. This is a t-shirt from 1993. And 
it has stains and it is not in good condition. <laughs> and I'm and I'm looking at one that is literally selling for like a hundred and forty five dollars. The same sweat pattern on it. <laughs> Very similar, yeah. Um, and so I I sold several of them. I sold sold like Jane's Addiction and um, a couple Pearl Jam T-shirts and like you know things that like had some kind of sentimental value to me. But why somebody would want my worn T-shirt to hang on their wall or to wear seems very strange. But honestly, honestly, it was probably a Gen Zer who like. Oh, I don't know who that band is, but it's it's cool and trendy. My name is Jane, and I have an addiction. What? This is crazy. It's about me. Um, my my discovery is that Natalie just messaged me to tell me that I was saying Merton Clavel for a while there, and I was like, "Sorry, Natalie, I was very excited." I just like my brain. You're a golden. We've retriever. had a, a lot of. I'm a golden retriever. You throw a ball at me. And Merton Clavel was probably a juggler as well. And he had a million balls thrown up in the air. But we've had, like, Natalie Hunt, six seasons, seven seasons? Seven seasons in a movie. Seven seasons well, in a movie seven, of history. Seven. And we've had a lot of, like, just some wild people. And of like, whoa, I've never heard of that. But I have never been on such a journey following one man's life. And, oh, my God, I... I'm like annoyed at how excited I am because I'm like I I'm gonna need to go to bed in an hour or so. I'm gonna be like how have I not have to do this guy? <laughs> I I really do. I really need to come down from this. <laughs> I know that we've discussed Merton's fabulous mustache, and we've brought Nick Cage into the mix, and I don't want to undercut Nick Cage, but if we did a movie on the life of Merton Clavette, which frankly somebody do it um please somebody option option those rights who would you cast to play martin well i i should say the the living family um chris and jason lieber are working on making a documentary it'll be a, a short documentary um How and a short documentary about somebody who did so many things <laughs> well i mean i think that the hope is that it's kind of like a calling card to do a larger project as well but yeah. um but yeah that is definitely in the works it, it would not be fictionalized my my dream would be um you know the the book the way i wrote the book is as an autobiography which he attempted to kind of write at different times um and then kind of at the end there's a fact from fiction that says like this is the, the liberties I took or the logical jumps I made or whatever. Um, but I would love a movie made like that. And I mean, Nick Cage is crazy and kind of unhinged enough that <laughs> I think he would be kind of spectacular and he would throw himself into all the things. And you did mention juggler. Merton Clavette was also a juggler. It should not be a surprise among all the other was, things. Yeah. I mean, he <laughs> literally did everything on vaudeville. Um, so all of those yeah. things. I would love to see, I would I would love to see someone like, um, like Nick Cage. That would be hilarious, and and I think it would this, interest him. Like I could yeah. imagine him going like, "Oh fuck yeah, I'll do that." <laughs> yeah, it, this gives me big fish vibes. Um, so I could see like you and McGregor. I could. See I'm trying to think of like a a true like Renaissance man who, again, so so. I always think of Broadway anymore, but so few actors that we see in TV and movies, like, do all of the things. 
Christopher Fitzgerald. Oh. oh. He pl- he played P.T. Barnum in what was it called? Bar- was it called Barnum, Natalie? He played so. he's Yeah, he is I know him he is Bach. an acrobat at who? I know Zunet. him as Bach and Wicked. As as Bach and Wicked, the original Bach, but he is, he's an acrobat, he's a singer, he's a dancer, he is like, if you think of a modern day vaudevillian, it is Christopher Fitzgerald. My, my casting doesn't necessarily, well, for one of them, it kind of fits the renaissance I uh, would cast as a, as a young Clavet, perhaps a Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and an old Clavet, perhaps a Victor Garber. But just give Victor Garber all the roles, and I'm happy. Uh, you know what? He's uh, underappreciated, I think. Oh my, so much. <laughs> as far as mustache goes, though, I think Daniel Day Lewis and Gangs of New York were a great mustache, and I feel like he. So would we're just going to cast a great mustache older. from that. <laughs> we're not casting Tandy Day. We're just casting yeah. a mustache. Got yeah. it. I I think that would be a an amazing get. Um, I I. I, I really enjoyed There Will Be Blood, but any of those kind of period yeah. things, you know, like he, he grows the facial hair. He, he does that. Do you know what would be a really interesting concept? Did you ever see, um, oh, it, it was like a Bob Dylan documentary, but all of these different actors yeah. played him. Yeah. What was it called? It was like Kate Blanchett, uh, yeah. Richard um, Gere, Jeff Bridges. I was going to say I'm not there, but then I was like, is that Joaquin Phoenix's fake documentary? No, it's a biopic. No, it is. It is. I'm not there. Okay. I'm not there yet. Um, but I like this idea of like, you know, like 10 completely different actors doing little vignettes of his life. And it is like, he is just like 12 different people. Like, it was this all the same guy or was this just like a bunch of people masking as him? Which obviously it was one guy, but it does give this this just weird larger than life like his life is a series of vignettes mm-hmm. when we hear about it i would love that i like that a lot I, I love that idea mm-hmm. and and artistically i think that'd be really interesting also yeah. I, I did enjoy the that dylan biopic i thought that was really clever the way they did that mm-hmm. but you're right i mean it would be a really neat way to mm-hmm. compartmentalize or encapsulate those different and then we wouldn't need to life. cast based on mustache alone true true. (laughs) although he did grow a mustache very early on which is why he was able to lie about his age for so long so oh i'm sure (laughs) i respect it so much uh listeners you can find out more about michael at michaelmcbride.com that's m-a-c-b-r-i-d-e not m-c um you can find out about all of all of his books so many books and watch those uh, unsolicited uh, book reviews that I mentioned, which I love that I asked for one, thus making it a solicited book review. But <laughs> well, that's neither here nor there. Michael, is there anywhere else on the internet that you would like people to find you? I mean, those, those are the easy ones. The The homepage, the michaelmcbride.com, links to all the socials. Um, I, I'll admit I'm, I'm not great at the social media thing. Um, it's something I'm trying to develop more. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, that's a good landing place. I mean, the 
greatclavette.com will have things specifically about the book and that will link to any of the film projects that the the Lieber brothers are working on as well so that's so exciting i uh as always listeners you can find these links below in the show notes as well as uh, lots of photos visuals so that you don't have to go seek out clavette's mustache yourself we will provide that for you that is a service that we provide you're so welcome you can also find uh some more bits and bops over on our socials we are at shared pod on instagram and on twitter which we have we're kind of intentionally not using anymore and we are i think shared history pod on mastodon there'll be a link in the bio i gotta i gotta double check what our handle is but that is all we wrote michael thank you so much for joining us no you know what no michael you've ruined my life i like there is i feel like you have just dropped uh, respectfully I feel like you just dropped a bomb in my life of this mystery man. And I don't know why I cannot wrap my head around this. And while I love you, I'm kind of, I'm kind of pissed. <laughs> I like Merton is going to live rent free in my head forever. <laughs> Michael, you don't know this, but as like a challenge, challenge slash permission, Cass, uh, half challenged half gave me permission to only do stories from Chicago history for this season because I make everything about Chicago history anyway and because I have these photos of these of these old newspapers that we found in our walls I think the oldest one that we found a date on is 1899 um which in 1899 the streets of New York echoed with the voices of newsies uh as everyone knows <laughs> but now I'm now I'm like I should be doing more research on the headlines that I can read and see if I can find a clavette and bring that for an episode. You've created so many monsters, Michael. (laughs) I'm sure there's lots of them out there. I mean, man, if you follow any of those, um, the crime, I mean, okay. So there there is um, my my buddy who lives in Kentucky shared his library password with me so I can access his databases of newspapers there. That's actually my preferred database because the Kentucky stories are so fucking wild. Like they're just, <laughs> they're crazy. They have, I, I mean, you got it. like the bootlegging stuff going on. You have like moonshine, but then you have like all of that stuff. But, but my very favorite stories in there are often like the crime stories and you know you the story is reported and then sometimes there are two newspapers in a day and so you'll get like multiple stories you know it like evolves over time and um but what i learned in at least in the kentucky papers is they published who was staying at hotels and when and where they came from and if you went to the er that you went to the hospital and why you went to the hospital and where you lived so you know it'd be michael mcbride of foothill trail and he went in for a broken leg. He's doing well. And like, we would never stand for that in this day and age. But it's crazy to see that information just got thrown out there. So you should keep digging. You'll find some fun stuff. Can you imagine if the the reason like you found out that you needed to go get tested was through your local paper? Oh, God. <laughs> That's immediately where my brain went. And I'm like, can you believe uh i I need to start reading the newspaper clearly (laughs) we're we're bringing newspapers back (laughs) 
I, yes, uh, thank you for coming on and ruining all of our lives, Michael. Uh, <laughs> but in the best way possible. Truly. I, I think we just found somebody who's the exact shade of nerd that, that we love. <laughs> Until next time. Share you later. Broadsheet Radio I just, Network. Like,